Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. I say then, have they, that is Israel, stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness... For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. If I by any means I if if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Let's pray. <clears throat> well, Father, again we thank you that to some degree you pull back a thick and lofty curtain here and at least tell us what we need to know on this very vital subject. Father, we look in history at Your astounding dealings with the Jewish people. And because of what we see before our eyes today, it's so easy to wonder what the future holds. Why have they come down from such a place of prominence? What has happened to Thy covenant with them? Father, thank You for giving us clear-cut answers to this. Because, Lord, we know this doesn't just affect them. This helps us to understand vital things concerning Your character, Your promises, the fact that You cannot change. Help us, Lord, as we behold another part of Your great plan with this nation that You call Israel. And help us to be strengthened for it as a result. In Jesus' name, Amen. How many of you are fascinated with big trees? Anybody here? I like big trees. I know that's one of the... uh, To me, one of the most fascinating things about the state of California is the Redwood Coast. I think, to me, that's probably about one of the most fascinating places on earth I'd like to go. I have been there. I could spend days walking through those giant trees. How many of you heard about that recent one that fell over in those storms when we were on our anniversary trip? One of the drive that I'm pretty sure that was the one we drove through. It was the last of the sequoias that you could drive through. There's still a few more redwoods. They're not quite the same. But I'm pretty sure that's the one we drove through. And there it was in the pictures laying flat on its side. The giant was slain. It's been there since the 1870s. They used to drive horses and carriages through it. And then automobiles. And then finally, uh, down it went in the last storm. Yeah, but if you're a tree lover you may want to someday visit. There's a little village in the northwest corner of Crete in the Mediterranean. It's called Anovuves. Now, this historic village has a claim to fame that uh, really is rather unique. Uh, What they claim is that they possess the oldest, oldest living olive tree on the face of planet Earth. The tree is roughly 15 feet across at the diameter 
And uh, actually, from what I read, it's kind of hard to, to gauge the exact age of old trees. There's actually more modern types of uh, technological ways, but because the heartwood in these old olive trees has long since decayed, they can't use uh, the radioisotopes. Somehow they have a way of telling uh, through that technology. But if you balance out the viewpoints on how old this tree is, you're going to come up with a number somewhere around uh, 3,000 years of age. Thousands of people every year flock to see the so-called oldest tree in the world uh, that was standing there long before the Son of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, for one, I find it fascinating. You, know, remember, you look at Paul's journeys and uh, on his way to Rome when he's going to appeal to Caesar, uh, they did stop by the island of Crete. And when Paul stopped by, of course he was more on the southern end of the island, but when they stopped by that island... That very tree had been there bearing fruit for a thousand years before Paul ever stopped by there. Now the olive tree, of course, is one of the most frequently mentioned symbols in the Word of God. It's all over the place. Uh, most of you know where that begins. It was Noah at the end of the flood. When all the world had been decimated, he goes up to that upper opening and he lets out that dove. And what did it come back with? It said, is that an olive leaf plucked off of course, which has become a symbol of peace, and to Noah, a sign that he was going to be getting off that boat, which I'm sure he was anxious to do. Uh, olive oil has been used for thousands of years as medicine. It's been used as food. It's been used as a cooking agent. It's been used as an oil to light dwelling places, uh, most notably the uh, tabernacle and later on the temple. Uh, all of those, the menorah candles, they were lit with uh, the oil that came from olives. Olive oil has been used to anoint kings and priests for service. To be anointed with olive oil was a sign of friendship, a sign of uh, refreshing and, and blessing. <clears throat> if you pay attention to the wood used in Solomon's temple, the posts of the door of that temple were made out of olive wood. If you could go into the Holy of Holies... You would see those large gold cherubim. Remember those with their wings spread over the Ark of the Covenant? But underneath that gold, what was there? They were made out of olive wood. Uh, the two end times witnesses mentioned in Revelation chapter 11. The prophet Zechariah pictures them as the two olive trees. The Jews are likened to olives by the prophet Jeremiah. The psalmist refers to children like olive plants around the table. Full of young life, needing cultivating. So much beauty and, and so much potential, but not if just left without care. And of course, our Lord ascended unto heaven from which mount? The Lord Jesus went up after his resurrection from the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is called that because of the olive trees that grew there. Now, I'm told. But still today, there are olive trees flourishing on that mountain, still bearing fruit that were there when Christ ascended. I mean, do you realize it's very possible when Jesus comes back to that same mountain, there will still be olive trees standing there that witnessed both of His comings. I find that fascinating personally. Olive trees have some incredible features that are definitely worth considering. For one, they take many years to bear fruit in the first place. Now, estimates are going to vary because there's a whole lot of different kinds of olive trees. But if you ask an olive farmer from the Mediterranean region, uh, certain uh, slower-growing varieties, not just to produce fruit, but actually produce stable, consistent crops, 
Some of them will take 65 to 80 years to produce consistent, stable crops. Now, once they reach a point of producing that, now that's not, again, that's not all the trees. Some are much faster, but the slowest growing ones are like that. And once they become fruitful, with ongoing minimal maintenance, they can then bear fruit for the next 1,000 years or more. Every, every spring, the tree explodes with a brilliant display of white flowers. I have read that it, it mimics or sort of looks like a lilac bush in the spring. Fragrant. Beautiful. And of course, a lot of those blossoms blow away in the spring breeze, but uh, typically they're going to leave enough to uh, load the tree down with summer fruit. Olive trees are incredibly drought resistant. When most other trees pine away and die because of lack of moisture, the olive tree is sure to be one of the last ones standing during long-standing drought. The stump of an olive tree can be neglected for years. It can look as good as dead, but when cultivated again, it can be brought back to fruitfulness. And of course, an olive tree would have been one of the most well-known sites in Bible times. Now, I found this particular statistic amazing. It's estimated today that there are somewhere around 750 million cultivated olive trees on earth. 95% of them are in that ring right around the Mediterranean. Okay, so this is a symbol they definitely would have understood very, very well in Bible times. It's quite fitting that this picture is used in this passage to depict the Jewish nation. I mean, even after being singled out as God's chosen nation through Abraham... It was centuries before they began to bear stable fruit as people in their own land. They've endured multiple periods of spiritual drought, which have been self-caused in their case, but they've been cultivated once again to at least some degree of fruitfulness and beauty. And today, if you look around by every appearance, they're like a neglected stump. The Jewish nation... Yes, they're occupying the promised land, but as far as what you read about God's dealings on their behalf in the Old Testament, and you look at what's there today, the appearance is a withered and neglected stump. It's a representative of a glorious past, but it raises many questions about the future of this olive tree of Jehovah. Now, I for one thank God that we're not left to just wonder. Paul answers these kinds of questions quite plainly. Now, last time we were in that first section two weeks ago, uh, the first verses of Romans 11. And the emphasis there is that God's rejection of the Jews has definite exceptions. It's not total even now. Paul uses his own life and ministry as an example. He uses the days of the life of Elijah. He uses the converted Jews even in this present age. And he emphasizes that God has and always will preserve Himself a remnant of Jewish people who do and have received their Messiah. And of course, that is based on what? It's not based on man's performance. What was God's answer to Elijah in those days? I have reserved unto Myself a remnant. Essentially, He's telling Elijah, hey... Man's going to do what he does. And yes, it's a tragedy when man rejects God's purposes, but don't forget this. There's no man or people group or nation on the face of the planet that's going to undo what God has promised. It cannot happen. And God's going to make sure He preserves a remnant of these people uh, just like He said. There's never going to come a time in this church age, never, where there are zero Messianic Jews. It cannot happen because God guarantees it. 
Now this second section of Romans 11, here's what this is showing. God's rejection of the Jewish people for now has a definite purpose. Sometimes in our creaturehood, we view things from our human perspective and that's okay. But we've got to understand our tendency is to always view God as reactionary. And that's how things come across to us. Men go to hell from the human side because they refuse Christ. Nobody's going to be there because God arbitrarily said you cannot be saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. But from God's side of things, He's not surprised. From God's side of things, He's not disappointed because disappointment has to do with wrong expectations which God cannot have. So, this whole issue of the Jews rejecting their Messiah did not provoke some sort of knee-jerk reaction on God's part or some secondary plan. It's exactly what God expected throughout the ages. And we can glory in the fact that things are right where God expected them to be on a world scale. Look at the question in verse 11. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Now one final time, of course, that compound Greek phrase, God forbid, appears. Meganoita, absolutely not. Now once again, the thought process leading up to that is is extremely logical. Alright, verse 8, we just sort of blew through last time. But here's what it says, God has given the Jews the spirit of slumber. Now the word slumber refers to a prickling sensation. That's what the word literally means. If you're sitting here weird on your leg, uh, folded up this morning underneath you, and at the end of the sermon, you'll, you'll stand up and you'll say, my leg is what? It's asleep. That's exactly the word picture. God is saying He's given the Jews this prickling sensation, this sleeping stupor. Okay, now God has done that. And then He also highlights David's imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory just means calling down God's judgment. Now that's not applicable. We don't pray down God's judgment on our enemies today. This was distinctly Jewish in flavor. But what the Holy Spirit does, He takes David's prayer, which was not aimed at Israel, and He turns it around and He applies it to the Jews. You see, historically their mindset had been what? God bless us, God curse our enemies. And so the Holy Spirit saying, hey, your superstar King David, guess what His prayer does? Let's turn that around and make application and show your deficiencies. And so that's turned around and and what's David praying? Let their table, that's the very place they go for rest and refreshment. Let that be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. In other words, give them a total face plan in the muck and the mire. Bow down their back. How long? Always. Now that sounds fairly permanent to me. If there are exceptions, uh, doesn't this mark the final state of the Jewish people? And of course the answer to that is absolutely not. I think it's fitting that of the ten times that phrase meganoita appears, every single time, hopefully you remember, is a logical extension. There's a doctrinal truth taught. Mankind goes, okay, now let me figure this out logically. And Paul jumps ahead of him and says, no. I think it's fitting the last two times this happens in the book of Romans. It has to do with, in reference to God casting away the Jews in their entirety, and God casting away the Jews for good. And both times the answer is, God forbid. That cannot happen. Now both of those are logical based on human reason, but are still dead wrong. So here's how the question's phrased. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Here's the idea. 
was the purpose for their tripping up that they would fall flat in such a way that they will never get up again. In other words, the question is, did God make them fall so their usefulness was over? Have they stumbled so that their fall was final and complete? And of course, the answer to that is no. And here's what he's going to highlight. Even the stumbling of God's chosen people has a definite purpose. What is it? Through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, some of you may have been disturbed early in your Christian life when you read the story in Matthew 15 of Christ's conversation. In fact, in Matthew 15, she's referred to as a Canaanite woman. In Mark's Gospel, she's called a Syrophoenician, but you probably remember the conversation. I can testify when I was early in my Christian life, I read that and I thought, what is he doing? Here comes this Canaanite woman. And she's begging Christ to do something about her daughter that's possessed with a devil. You remember the story? And it says there that Christ answered her not a word. Now I read that as a Gentile when I was young in my faith and think, I thought God wasn't a respecter of persons. Well, when Jesus finally does speak, He says to her, remember what He said? It's not meat, it's not fitting to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Ouch. Uh, By the way, if you think it's insulting to be called a dog today, go back to the first century and try it on for size. This was long before a dog rode on people's lap and was called Fifi, man's best friend. Dogs back then were what ate dead bodies that were left in the street. They were roving scavengers and scoundrels full of disease. To be called a dog was a horrible insult, and Jesus does that on purpose because that was exactly what the Jews called the Gentiles. Dogs, savages, meat-eaters, worthless. Okay, so Jesus says that to her. It's not fitting to take these crumbs and uh, bread and feed it to you. Here's what Christ is doing. He's not only testing her faith, but He's instructing His disciples. Because what He just expressed is their mindset. You see, what He's going to tell this woman is her faith was great. Why was her faith great? What does she respond? Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Jesus says, O woman, great is thy faith. You see, she understood a couple of things. Number one, she was persistent in her understanding that God's heart was not only to bless one nationality. What else was it she understood? You see, the children's bread, out of the overflow, the crumbs fall off the table to where even a dog can eat. The other thing she understood is that blessing to the Gentile world was going to come through the overflow of what God was doing with the Jews. See, Jesus wasn't being mean to her at all. There's a reason she's inscripturated as some having great faith. Because it's exactly what God wants you and I to understand out of it. No, God doesn't think we're second class citizens and dogs, but He wants us to understand It was always in his heart to bless the Jewish nation through, or the the Gentiles through the Jews. All uh, Scripture accords with this principle. You remember the promises in Genesis 9 to uh, Noah's sons. 
You have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You remember, Japheth is going to dwell in the tent of Shem. Most of you are from the tribe of Japheth. When he says they're going to dwell in the tents of Shem, he means the world's going to be blessed through what God does with the Jewish people, the Semitic people. Even to Abraham, he says, In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Paul says, no, through their fall, the word fall is actually transgression, it's to overstep a boundary. Through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. Do you realize this from the divine perspective? Uh, Christ came and He was presented as the King to the Jews. The Gospel of Matthew is the one that primarily emphasizes that. But even that didn't take God by surprise. There's all kinds of theological wranglings on that topic, by the way. Jesus came to offer Himself as King. He entered into Jerusalem on a colt full of a donkey. And the message of Matthew is, Behold your King! And, And many people want to ask, well, what if they had received Him? What if they had taken Him right then? Would He have established His millennium right there? That's a moot point. Number one, God knew they wouldn't. Number two, what did that still not deal with? The sin problem. You see, that still would have left sin not atoned for. And do you realize Israel's rejection of their Messiah from God's viewpoint did not institute plan B? From God's side. It was their very rejection that led to the bloody sacrifice of the Son of God, which fulfilled His purposes and brought multitudes of prophecies to pass. It was through their rejection that propitiation, the satisfaction for the wrath of God was given. And also that God would open wide the door of salvation into the world. Those shepherds, that night when Christ was born outside Bethlehem, what did the angels say? I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to who? All people. Now, Simeon, later on in the same chapter, this blessed old man in the temple takes him up and calls him a light to the Gentiles. But as glorious as that is, that's still not the end product. Notice the kind of full circle there in, in, at the end of verse 11. For to provoke them, the Jews, to jealousy. Now the word jealousy there, more of the word emulation. You see the word emulation uh, later on in a couple of verses. Those are actually very similar words. It's not jealousy so much as we think about it, but what the type of jealousy he's talking about is to provoke them to come alongside. It's to provoke them to see how God is blessing the Gentile world and to move them to action to come along with and do something about it, not to, not to fight against. I mean, how mysterious are the ways of God? Think about it. God allows sin in a perfect world, knowing that through this fall, His love and grace would be put on display in ways that could never be known in a perfect world. That's one of the hardest things to understand about sin, by the way. God never justifies it. It's never okay to sin. It is never God's fault anybody sins, ever. But yet, even beyond that, theologically, we understand God did allow it temporarily in the universe to put attributes of His on display that we could never, ever know without it. How would you praise God for His grace if you never fell? 
How would you understand the love of God? How would you praise the Lamb with the scars on His hands if He never died for you? So from God's side, part of the reason sin was allowed is to magnify His character and ways. To reveal things to us that we would have never known. Angels don't understand grace. They can't experience it. They had one chance. Of all creatures, you and I get to actually experience grace. And so God raises up one chosen nation to be a theater for His mighty works through whom He is going to pen the Scriptures, through whom the Savior of the world is going to come that was promised long before Israel was a nation, knowing all the while that they would flatly reject that Messiah. But then through that rejection, the good news was going to spread to all people on the earth. And then, through that light being shed to the Gentiles, the very same nation that put to death the only sinless man would be provoked back to God Himself. And the circle would be complete. No wonder Paul breaks out in the doxology that he does at the end of this chapter. What does he say in the first line? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. No kidding. But you see, here's another example in verse 12 of God destroying the wisdom of the so-called wise. Look at the logic here. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness... How do we tend to think? If it was through their transgression, if it's been through their judicial blinding by God that has led to such eternal blessing to the Gentile world, why would you and I want it to end? Isn't that how we think? If God blessed us so richly through their failure, in our humanness we say, I vote for continued failure. Admit it, you have a flesh just like I do. You see, again, Paul's jumping ahead and saying, let me help you with that. This is another place where human reason left unchecked gets us into serious trouble. You see, the tendency is a competitive mindset rather than a worshipful one. Why is it sometimes you are inflamed with jealousy when your brother's blessed by God? Why? Because you think God's hand is shortened that He can't bless you now. Isn't it true? We do that. Even though everything is His and He could make something out of nothing more if He wanted to. Now, you take that... uh, In other words, the, the, the point is not to be glad for the failure of the Jews, but here's what the point is. To think this way. If God can extend just such incredible blessings to all mankind through the failure of the one nation He chose... Just think what He can do in the future through their obedience. I mean, you think of that phrase talking about the fullness of the Jews. Tell me, which time in Israel's history, if you had to pick, would you say best describe the term fullness? What would it be? I would say during Solomon's reign. They had the biggest borders they had ever enjoyed. They still haven't had all of the promised land in their possession, by the way, but that was the closest they came in Solomon's reign. They had rest from their enemies and total and complete peace for that 40-year period. Now combine that with indescribable wealth. 
You ever lived anywhere that had so much gold and silver that it was counted as common as rocks? And combined with that, you have the man that God Himself calls the wisest man on the planet leading the whole nation. I mean, the sight was so amazing that this wealthy Queen of Sheba shows up and she almost lost consciousness at the glory, the wisdom, the sights, the sounds, the organization she saw almost made her pass out. Now, if we could pick a time in history for the Gentiles to be blessed through Israel, we would probably say that's, that's got to be where it is, right? But it was centuries later, while they were under Roman oppression, with no monarchy, with David's lineage living as peasants, and talk about no monarchy, just after they nailed the Son of God to a cross, it was at their lowest point. But God says, I said I would bless all the world through you. And I'm going to pick that darkest point in your history to bring that to pass. And that's what, that's what he did. Now the point is, if God can do so much through the greatest human failure in all history, what can he do in the future still. Look at Paul's comprehensive view of his calling. Verses 13 and 14. He says, I speak to you Gentiles. Now it's like Paul's taking the entire Gentile world aside for this fireside chat about how things really are. He says, I'm the apostle of the Gentiles. His primary calling was to preach to people who were not Jewish. But he says, I magnify my office. I think and esteem my office very, very highly, but here's why. Uh, not only because I have the privilege of seeing multitudes of former outsiders brought to eternal faith in Christ to worship forever, but even beyond that. It's like Paul saying, you, you remember that burden I told you about back in chapters 9 and 10? Remember that constant heaviness in the soul of mine? Remember how I would wish myself accursed from Christ if I could? You remember how I have a continual heaviness in my soul for my kinsmen, the Jews, and Paul is saying, let me tell you why I think so highly of my office. Not just because I get to see Gentiles come to Christ, but because every Gentile convert I'm blessed to win it means more opportunity to emulate the Jewish people to come alongside and see their own Messiah for who He is. What a glorious calling indeed. He says, if by any means I may provoke them to emulation. Paul was willing to employ any lawful method to bring Jews to Christ. I mean, that's the idea of fishing for men. Most of you know not all fish bite on the same bait. There's wisdom in how to reach people. Here's what Jude says. Some you save with fear. Others have compassion. There's a spiritual wisdom involved because not everybody's going to be reached through the same means. Same gospel... But the build-up to, to that's going to be as varied as there are people. I mean, this is why Paul shaved his head and went to Jerusalem for feasts. It wasn't because he had to. It was because he chose to. That was a means by which to have opportunity, a platform to preach uh, to the Jews. And even that didn't go so well, did it? That's how he became arrested. And so in the midst of all his labors among the heathen tribes of humanity, he hadn't lost focus of end times prophecy relating to the Jewish nation. Look at verse 15. 
For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, again, Bible reconciling is not restarting an old relationship. Bible reconciling is starting a relationship where there never was one. If you say we're reconciled to God, that doesn't mean I was His child and now I'm fixing it. In the salvation sense, it means a new relationship that never existed. But he says, if all the world heard the good news and millions have come to Christ through their casting away, what shall be the receiving of them but life from the dead? So Paul's saying, don't lose sight of coming miracles. I mean, if God can use the rejection of His covenant people to transform millions of Gentile rebels, what can He do with a, with a restored Israel? What shall it be, he says, but life from the dead? Can you imagine the shock that day in Bethany? And here lies a townsman that the people knew, and he's been in the grave for four days, and the weeping and wailing is going on. Here comes this former carpenter from Nazareth. And he yells out at that tomb, Lazarus, come forth. Imagine the shock of standing there and watching that happen. But can I tell you something? That is going to be nothing compared to the wonder of the Jews walking out of their spiritual tomb after 2,000 plus years in a moment. It's going to be life from the dead. Ezekiel 37 pictures it as the breath of God entering into them. The Dead Sea, which is such a vivid picture of where Israel is at, is going to be turned into living water. Their dead religion is finally going to recognize the living Lamb and that the life of the flesh is in His blood. That dead Judean desert is going to blossom with life again like a rose. It will be a thousand year reign of the rightful King of Israel. Upon his throne. Then what you have in verse 16 and on is this lengthy warning and a very timely one to the Gentile world as a whole. Look at verse 18. What's the warning there? Boast not against the branches. If you back up to verse 16, you have more of the explanation. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. You know, the offering of a first fruits. Uh, basically what it was, they were, they were offered to God as a token of a full harvest to come in the future. There was a visible sign of thanksgiving uh, for God uh, to what He was about to do. It was a recognition that whatever harvest came was rightfully His. It says the first fruits were holy. Now that's not talking of moral quality. I mean, can a bucket of grain be holy? Can a piece of dough be holy in the sense of being morally pure? No. The word holy means set apart. So if the first fruit of an offering was set apart to God, that signified the entire offering was dedicated to it. That was true of uh, grain. That was true of bread dough. He says the first fruit of that bread dough was set apart, so is the entire lump, the entire loaf. Alright, now here's this point. If the root of a tree is set apart, so are the branches. Now, the root he's speaking of is the beginnings of the Jewish nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, they were set apart by what? By their flawless example, right? They were set apart by God's choosing. 
They were set apart by unconditional covenant made by Jehovah Himself, mentioned, I will, I will, I will, repeatedly. So, they were set apart not by performance, but by God Himself. So, here's, what, here's the first point to that. None of the current blindness has affected the root. Only the branches. That root is still firmly planted in God's eternal counsels. Now look at verse 17. Some of the branches have been broken off because of ongoing unbelief. That was talking about the current state of the Jews. Now, and that was true in Paul's day, it's still today. Those branches have been snapped off because they refuse to bow before the God of heaven and take the Messiah that He's offered. Now God, what has He done? He's taken a wild olive branch. That's the Gentile world. And He's grafted it into that same root. Now grafting is an interesting process. Uh, Basically what they would do is chop the tree down to almost nothing. And then through openings or slits in the bark, they would take a little sapling of a branch and they would insert it into that stump. And over time, they would mesh together and uh, once again produce fruit. Now, there are a lot of kinds of olive trees, but they really fall into two categories. There's those that are cultivated and those that are wild. The wild olive, olive trees typically had a very, very strong and developed root system. But you see, the problem was they didn't bear much fruit. A cultivated olive tree took a whole lot longer to establish roots, but it would bear the most fruit. That's why they still cultivate them today. Nobody wants an impressive tree with wonderful roots uh, with nothing to pick. Okay, so that's the picture he's kind of bouncing off of here. Now, it's interesting uh, the way Paul describes this. If, If God, he's saying, took a wild olive branch and put it onto a cultivated one. Now, what I'm told most of the time... The picture is actually the opposite. What people would do is take a cultivated olive branch and fasten it on to a wild root system. Because the root system was well established, but the cultivated branch would bear the fruit. And so Paul is giving an opposite picture here, saying God's taken a wild tree that's totally unfruitful in and of itself. And through chopping off these branches... He's sticking it into this rootstock, which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with a root, he's saying. It's still the same. I've read at least uh, one historical account, though, that is quite interesting. And they said that the, the custom was in those days, every once in a while, they would take a wild branch and put it on a cultivated stump. Do you know why? That wild branch would do something to invigorate that stump. Somehow it would inject new life into it and make it jumpstart back to life. But you see, the problem was that wild branch wouldn't do what? It wouldn't grow good fruit. And so eventually, cultivated branches had to be put back on. See how the picture fits? Quite a marvelous picture that God is painting indeed. You see, He says the Gentile world is now partaking of the root and fatness, these blessings through Christ given to Israel. But notice the warning in verse 18 when he says, boast not against the branches. Here's what he's saying. Don't adopt a position of superiority over the natural branches. Remember your place in all of this. It's the root that is bearing you and not vice versa. 
You are the one that God has graciously added to unspeakable blessings in these times, but the root itself hasn't changed. Warning number two, what is it? Verse 20. Be not high-minded, but fear. Notice the argument in the verse just prior. Verse 19. Thou wilt then say, the branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. In other words, the tendency of the Gentile world is to do something like this. They were cast off because of their unbelief. God snapped them off because of their persistent stubbornness. And I've come to Christ. And the Gentile world has spread the Gospel all over the planet. Show me the Jews who went to the jungles of South America or the native villages of Alaska or the deserts of Mexico. They haven't translated the Scriptures into hundreds of difficult languages and dialects. The tendency is to glory in the fact that they were removed so that we might be blessed and take some sort of carnal pride in Gentile faith and accomplishments. And to that, Paul says, don't you dare be high-minded, puffed up with lofty arrogance, but you better fear. If this whole discussion leads to that lofty-minded mindset, we're missing the boat. What it's supposed to produce is a proper fear of God. Here's why. Look at verse 21. For if God spared not the natural branches, what's the second half? Take heed, lest He also spare not thee. Now I'm going to say more on that in a minute. But warning number three in verse 22 is to behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. God has not only displayed infinite goodness toward the Gentiles, but He is still a God of severity. Severity speaks of decisiveness. If I may put it bluntly, He's the God of the bloody axe falling from the heavens without warning. That calls to mind to me the passages behind sinners in the hands of an angry God in Deuteronomy 32, where the Lord says, To me belong vengeance and recompense. That's payback. Their foot shall slide in due time. And Edwards in that sermon goes to lengthy detail about that phrase, their foot shall slide in due time. How it was God knew when it would happen. The time was appointed. And the the word slide indicates they had no idea when it was coming. It was severe. It was decisive. Now, what's the condition? If thou continue in His goodness. Now, is that a warning about losing salvation? Okay, many have tried to take it that way. Okay, but I want to call to mind the context of what we're talking about. We're not talking about individuals. We are talking about national usage. We are talking about national influence. This warning is given to the Gentile world as a whole. So just as the Jews forfeited God's favor and blessing for a long season, even though they were His covenant people, so God is perfectly willing to chop off the wild olive branch if it becomes necessary. Now, if you're, if you're there, if you want, turn, keep your finger in Romans. Turn to, turn to Hebrew, or, uh, Revelation, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 2. There's somewhat of a similar warning here given to the church in Ephesus. Let me talk about the model church in the first century. Revelation chapter 2, his message to Ephesus, in verse 5. Despite their doctrinal soundness, he tells them, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. They've fallen from their love for Christ, by the way. And repent. 
and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. He's not telling individual Christians he's going to remove their salvation. He's telling this church as a body, if you do not collectively repent and change your direction, I'm going to remove you from a place of prominence and influence, and I'm going to snuff out the candle. And historically, that's exactly what happened. Now, obviously, that's to the church, and we're talking about Israel, but, but my point is that's a similar kind of warning. This is a collective warning to the Gentile world. Listen, if God is willing to cut off His covenant people and set them aside from a place of influence, don't you dare think that He won't do the same thing to the Gentile world in carrying the torch. I think verse 22 is, is it's just a statement, but it's also very prophetic. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in His goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. What that's explaining is exactly what's going to happen at the end of this current age. Now the torch has been handed to the Gentile world to make Christ known, to preach the Gospel and make disciples all over the world. How successful are we going to be at the end? Is the world just falling down at our doorstep being conquered for Christ? Tell me, what's the last scene that marks the Gentile dominion of planet Earth? The rapture has happened. And now you have all the Gentile armies of the world and what are they doing? They're gathering to exterminate the Jews. And they're gathering to fight against Christ. And as that sword comes out of his mouth, he lays waste the vast armies of the Gentile nations. I wonder if anyone there will think of Romans 11.22 in a worldwide sense. Of course, the church will be gone at that point. But God is willing to cut off the entire Gentile world as His primary mouthpiece also. Verse 24, For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? See, that's exactly the picture we just talked about. If the wild olive tree can be put into the good cultivated rootstock and bear at least some fruit, how much more will fruit be born when the cultivated branch is put onto its own rootstock again? You see, that's talking about the day that's, that, that, that's still to come. When the natural branches, the Jews will be grafted back into the main root. When the Old Testament prophecies finally flame with life in the soul of Abraham's sons and daughters. If I were to ask you, where in the Bible do you find the triumphal entry, what would you say? Someone says, oh, it's in the footnote of my Bible right towards the end of the Gospels when Jesus comes meek and lowly upon a colt full of that donkey. Can I tell you where the real triumphal entry is? It's in Revelation 19. You want to talk about the real triumphal entry? It's not when He comes meek and lowly on a donkey. It's when He comes on a gleaming white horse. Behold, Enoch says, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints. 
And in that day, He's going to have on His vesture and on His thigh a name written that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And out of His mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. And guess what? There's no room for debate. That sword doesn't go out to take a survey or ask an opinion or run for office. That, that sword goes out to destroy all who will not bow the knee. You know, it's like the old statement says, either you bow your knees willingly to Christ now or you bow when your shins are broken by the rod of iron that He's going to rule with. But the point is, you're going to bow. Right now, all of us have a choice as to when. But those days are passing away. The temple will once again be built. You can read about it at the end of Ezekiel. Blood sacrifices will be offered. Not for atonement, but as a memorial. I wonder, dwelling in that millennium, what that will mean to some worshipers who were born during that time. Who see so much of the sin curse rolled back with King Jesus on the throne. And they go there to that altar and they offer up that lamb and it spills its blood and it dies. And they can see the resurrected King standing there. And he can still say, these are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. You want to talk about an object lesson about the love and grace of God. I can't imagine. The world's going to know a fullness that it hasn't seen or felt since the days of Eden. Just in conclusion, real quickly, I want to say a couple of comments on that and we'll be done. I find that statement, be not high-minded but fear, an amazing one. Here's why. I think what that does is highlight our human tendency to despise or forget those that have labored much for our own spiritual blessing. You ever think about that? I was talking in the discipleship hour about the presidential inauguration. And despite our differences with the president that, that, that's, that just came out of office, that man has been used to defend us and protect us in a lot of respects. I don't agree with his policy. I think he's a wicked man. I think he's done more to push liberal agenda and sinfulness than any president in history. But I can still say I'm thankful that a man's willing to take that office and stop me from getting blown up. I'm still thankful for that. It's true spiritually, isn't it? You ever notice that those that have cultivated your spiritual life, the person who brought you to Christ, or those that uh, have invested in you, the tendency over time is to develop a critical eye. Now, it's not wrong to examine things scripturally. But I would say, remember this. Boast not against that rootstock, because it bears you and not vice versa. I was sitting in my office yesterday or the day before, I don't remember, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at all these books on the wall and I thought, oh Lord God, what a wealth of information sitting there gleaned from brethren that have lived a thousand years ago. And Lord help me not to have a wrongfully critical tongue. I see their errors, but I see their errors looking from my vantage point. We've got to be very careful saying, oh, brother, thank you so much for what you contributed. What a loser you are. Look how much I know. Children can do this with parents. We all have a tendency to do it. We can do it with the Jewish nation. Are they Christ killers? 
I don't like that term. It bothers me greatly when somebody uses it. Do you know why? All of us are Christ killers. If you want to get right down to it. Someone says it was the Jews that nailed Him to the cross. So, friend, no. The hammer and nails were in your hands individually. It was your sin that spiked Him to that tree and for which He died. All of us share in that guilt. Are you able to clearly view the goodness and severity of God? Don't we tend to view goodness to me, severity to others? Are you as severe against your own sin and fault as you are against those of others? I mean, do we fancy that God overlooks our indiscretions and puts a magnifying glass in everybody else's just because I'm me? Once again, be not high-minded, but fear. Do all of you know something of God's severity? If you've never believed in Christ and you're sitting here and you say God isn't severe, you're in serious trouble. It's only through God's severity. It's only through His judgment of sin. It's only through understanding the guilt and condemnation you deserve that you can ever possibly come to salvation. What's there to be saved from if there's no wrath coming your way? You don't throw a life ring to a man who's not convinced he's drowning. We must behold both His goodness and severity. We need to have a balanced picture of God in this age. Is God full of grace? Sure is. But He's still a consuming fire. Is God patient? You bet. But we can't take God's patience as a guarantee He's not going to severely judge our own foolishness. Because He will. When was the last time you thanked God that you've been grafted into this main rootstock of Israel? That God could take the lowest point in the history of His chosen people and through that magnified degree of human failure, He can bring such tremendous salvation full and free to every one of us. It ought to encourage us that God is the God who gives beauty for ashes. He still is. Sitting here today and God, I, I say, I, I got some ashes in my life. Give them up to God and see what He'll do with them. He still does that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this deep and mysterious purpose of Yours, which, Lord, to us, it seems like so many different parts and pieces, but to you it's all part of one grand and glorious plan. It moves on like a river towards its destination. There's so much we don't understand. So much of this is, is far beyond our comprehension. But Lord, we praise you and thank you for that which we can see. I thank you, Lord, that you can use human failure so marvelously. That you don't condone the sin, you judge it, but yet still you can override it for good. I thank you, Lord, that no person, no nation can override that which you've said you will do without exception. I thank you, Lord, nothing that takes place in this entire earth or in this town that you are not fully aware of. Past, present, future. Nobody can do anything if you don't give them the life and breath and brains and tongue and hands and feet and everything else. Thank you, Lord, for your sovereign and perfect control over all things. Thank you, Lord, for blessing this group of Gentiles here this morning. We praise you for that rootstock you established thousands of years ago. 
We bless and thank you for the covenants you made that you said you will keep, period. And we thank you, Lord, that you extend salvation to whosoever will. Father, if there's any here that are outside of Christ, let them not have a place of complete rest until they submit themselves unto a righteousness that's not their own. I pray you'd help such a person to see your severity along with your desire to save. You're a God of patience and a God of deadlines, both of which must be known. I thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do in the future with the Jewish nation. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.